Hello, this is For Art's Sake, a podcast that gives voice to museum people. Here we discover their untold stories, for art's sake and for your sake. Our guest today is Louise McAward-White. Louise is currently working at the British Film Institute, where she wears a lot of hats. While her key role at the BFI focuses on management and preservation of digital materials, she's also a mental health first aider. She's also a co-founder of Fair Museum Jobs, an initiative highlighting issues in museum recruitment practices. As ethical employment becomes an increasingly important issue for so many of us, it's great to have this kind of group advocating for better working conditions in the sector. And we'd love to learn from Louise about her museum journey, as well as her current work in its many and varied forms. Louise, hello. Hello. So Louise, before we delve into your professional life and and delve into the work that you're doing at the moment, we'd love to learn a little bit more about you, um, about how you came to to do the work you're doing now. Did you imagine yourself working in museums as a child? Has that that lived up to those expectations? Uh, I absolutely did not think I would work in museums when I was a child. I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And then I learned that maths is hard. And I wanted to be a ballet dancer. And then I learned standing on one leg is hard. Uh, And I wanted to be (laughs) a wedding planner. And then I discovered other people are terrible, especially at weddings. Um, And I just sort of fell into museums. I was doing a uh, module during my undergraduate degree, all about kind of arts and heritage in the kind of widest sense. And as part of that, we had to do a project about an arts or heritage event or organization. So I just went to my local museum and walked around and wrote loads of things down. And then they were looking for volunteers. So I thought, oh, I'm not really doing that much outside of my degree. So I'll volunteer. And then it all sort of spiraled from there, I suppose. What was your first museum job? Uh, My first museum job was the euphemistically called museum assistant um, in a local history museum, which really just meant doing whatever there was. Uh, A lot of front of house, but I also did events, schools, a bit of documentation, anything that they would pay me or my zero hours contract for, to be honest, (laughs) that's what I did. (laughs) Uh, And did the museum sector leave up to how you pictured it? I think when I first started, I had quite a rosy picture. I I think I was really lucky in my first job that it was a really supportive environment, really amazing museum director who was really supportive of sort of staff development for all the staff, including all the, the zero hours contract and temporary contract people. And I think I didn't maybe realize that actually some of that looking back on it was maybe a bit exploitative I was on a zero hours contract I was doing a lot of hours and I didn't have you know holiday or sick leave and all of that kind of stuff and I think now I look back on it it maybe wasn't as rosy and that sort of has shaped some of what I've done since then definitely But I did have a lot of temporary contracts and part-time work. At one point, I was working three part-time jobs at the same time. So two jobs in museums and one job in a library, which was great. But also, I think I only did it for about four months because just burn out working six days a week. It's just a lot. And having to remember all of the different 
working processes for each place you're working is enough of, of, you know, it takes up a lot of your brain space. So that was quite complicated. But I didn't get my first permanent job in in museums for about uh, four, five years, I think, after I'd started, um, Mm. before I got a permanent job. So all of that, those juggling the part-time jobs eventually has led you to your current role at the BFI. Um, for those listening who might not be 100% familiar with, with the BFI, could you give us a brief rundown of, of what it is and what it does? So the BFI, British Film Institute, is the National Film and Television Archive, in, in short. What that means is that we preserve and uh, retain the film and television produced by Britain for for posterity. So we are recording about 12 TV channels 24 hours a day. So if you need an episode of Love Island, it is in our archive. We have all of them. We have the news, we have the adverts, we have all of the idents from all of the channels. And then also we have British film that's that's produced. So uh, all of the big British films from the last hundred years, we've got them all. And we also, as an organisation, do work within the film industry. So things like championing diversity and inclusion issues, funding British film is a really big part of the BFI's work. We also have our cinema uh, on the South Bank in central London. And the cinema uh, shows not just British film, but film from around the world, different seasons, also television. There's the library, which contains um, a lot of special collections material, film posters, costume designs, storyboards, uh, film directors, notebooks and and personal archives, all kinds of material. So it's a really big collection. And the BFI as an organisation has a lot of different facets to it. So it's a really interesting organisation to be involved with. It's absolutely fascinating. And we'd love to learn a little bit more from an insider view of how exactly it happens, maybe just a little bit later on. And But uh, to a lot of people, the BFI sounds quite different from the museum world. So how do these two spaces, these two industries intersect? I think because the BFI is such a big organisation, the intersect with museums is in a couple of places. So we are funded in the same way as a lot of the national museums. So we are also an arm's length government body funded to do a heritage job of preserving the the national film and television collection, just the same as the V&A is an arm's length funded government body for the history of of design. We're the same as that, but for film uh, is one one way of like making that connection quite clear. But also we are looking after a collection and we are using that collection for learning and engagement. It's just that our collection is something that you watch on a screen in a lot of incidents. So it's not a 3D object like a sculpture, but it is still an object. But with the added complication that the object is the film on the screen, but the object is also the physical film itself or the videotape or the digital file. So it's a slightly more complicated area in that sense. No, I really like that, that idea of the, the duality of your objects being both physical and sort of this intangible idea. Your role is a, a collection system specialist. Is that correct? What does that entail? Uh, so... What it means in short is 
I look after a really big computer database. That's really what my job is. What that means in practical terms can be really varied. So I uh, do a lot of work supporting our systems users. So we have around 300 or so staff who use our databases. So we have our internal database, but we also have the public interface with the collection. So anyone anywhere can search our collection to find a TV program they just about remember that they watched once in the mid 90s. So we maintain that that database. So on an average day, I'll be uh, answering queries from users about how to do something. I'll be planning for system upgrades and improvements that we need to work on. I'll be improving data. Spending a lot of time in spreadsheets, I think, is is really big in uh, collection systems and documentation work. There's a lot of exporting data, finding the thing that's broken, which might be one thing in 10,000, and then putting it back in the database again. So definitely attention to detail is, is something I'm using every day. And then it's a lot of replying to emails, training, just helping people and trying to make it easier for them to do their job. The system is really a tool for our staff to do what they do. So curators need it to search for things and do research. And our film conservation staff need to record the conservation work they've done. And I really see my role as trying to make that as easy as possible for them. Louise, can you tell us something about what you're you're working on at the moment? Are there any key projects that the BFI currently has going on that you're excited about? Uh, So something I'm really excited about, which is not a thing that everyone gets excited about, is that we're needing to start moving our whole collections system into a new collection system. So we currently use AdLib for Windows, and they are moving into something web-based and dynamic and hopefully easier to use called Axial Collections. And that is a big project for our team. We're talking you know, multiple years of work to really get that up and running. And I, re- I find it really exciting because it's a chance for me to really spend time with our users and understand how they are doing something. What, and they, what do they really need from us? And how can we make a system that helps support them in the best way? And I, I really get excited about doing that work because you can see the change, the impact that it's had. And that's something that I'm really excited about. Uh, Another project that I'm really excited to be just starting to work on is a decolonization project for the database. Mm. So I know a lot of museums, archives, libraries, universities, everything are, are working on these projects. But I think it's really important that we all take a responsibility for really reviewing what is in our data that we haven't been paying attention to when we should have been? And how do our systems support structures that should not be supported? What are our systems meaning that we miss? Are we recording all of the context that we should be about our films and our collections? And we know there are holdings that we have that were created as part of something called the Colonial Film Unit. And that obviously comes with a perspective and a story. But we need to decide, are we telling that story? And what are we doing with it? And is it the right thing to do? And I think 
at the moment, we don't know the answers to those questions. We're really at the beginning of the project, just working out what we need to know to to take it forward and just think about the areas that we need to review and, and how we can make sure that we're really embedding practical and important work for the long term, not just as a project, but for the future, because this isn't an an issue that can be solved by doing six months of in-depth documentation. This is something that is attached to all of our objects and material, no matter what our organization is, I think, in the cultural heritage sector. And we all need to be really aware of that. So I'm really excited to be working on that project at the moment. You are also a mental health first aider at the BFI. This sounds like an excellent and really necessary role that a lot of places could benefit from. When did the BFI introduce this concept? And was there kind of a trigger or some kind of call to action? So the BFI introduced mental health first aiders about four years ago now. They first piloted with a few people and then they scaled it up with with interested people. And that's when I started. So about three years ago, I think. And it really came from a recognition in the organization that mental health is important. And that was coming out of the film industry, but also the world. And Uh, there was a, a time to change pledge that was signed by quite a few organizations, including the BFI. And as part of that, it's about committing to what mental health means within your organization and having mental health first aiders was a way to support that. So the role of a mental health first aider is to be a kind of, it's kind of the same as a physical first aider. A lot of people have first aid in their organization. And it's the same. It's when there is an emergency, it's having someone to go to who is equipped with some training and some tools to understand what to do in a crisis. So just the same as you can help someone who uh, is having a, a physical medical emergency, it's sort of the same thing, but for mental health. Is this something that's unique to BFI or are you aware of this role existing in, in other uh, institutions? No, it's quite a widespread scheme. I'm not sure it's completely taken hold in museums. I know of a few that I can think of that that, are, that either have them or, or are kind of actively pursuing it. But it is a wider thing across the country. So our training was done centrally by St. John's Ambulance, just the same as your physical first aid is. So it is something that's really available to people. Uh, Louise, what's in your view your greatest achievement at the BFI to date? I think I'm going to have to say that I have two greatest achievements in my current job. One of them is that by taking a really approachable approach to my work and the work of making systems better for people, I've really, it really, really improved the relationship of the, our collection systems team with some of the other teams in the wider organization. So before where it was potentially, it was a difficult relationship because they didn't understand us and we didn't understand them. But I really put the time in to spending time with users to understand what they do and what they need the system for. And now we're like best work friends. 
I, I c- I'm allowed to go and sit in their office when I'm on their site. And they bought me some birthday chocolate last year. But that would not have happened if I ha- if we hadn't really put the time and effort into understanding our colleagues. And I think that's a lesson we can all take is that you often need to find that common ground between what you're trying to achieve and what your colleagues are trying to achieve because you can work together really easily. You just have to find how that that works for you. And then the other thing I'm really proud of is it's not uh, my day-to-day job, but I also run the BFI's internal mentoring scheme. So I match up BFI staff uh, internally to do mentoring. And that's something I'm really passionate about and I'm quite involved in across the museum sector is about learning from other people and helping people develop their personal and professional skills and confidence from that kind of mentoring relationship. And that's something I'm really, really pleased to have done. And I'm working on the second round of that at the moment. And can you just describe what exactly this mentoring scheme is about? So the mentoring scheme really has the goal of improving relationships and uh, sort of from an inclusion perspective somewhat across the BFI. So anyone is welcome to apply to have a mentor And anyone is welcome to apply to be a mentor. And then based on the skills that people are looking to develop, I match them up with someone who says they have that skill. So someone could come uh, with an application that says, oh, I'm looking to develop my presentation skills because I want to do X, Y, Z in the future. So I find I try to find them someone else in the organization who might do a lot of presentations as part of their work. Maybe one of the curators who does a lot of public speaking. And then I can match them together for that mentee to develop those skills that they're looking for. And I kind of uh, support them with training and learning materials about how to be a mentor and and the mentoring relationship. In addition to your your role at the BFI, you're also uh, actively engaged with their museum jobs, which uh, is a non-profit initiative highlighting the, the, the good and the bad in museum recruitment practices How did this project come about and and why is it so necessary? So we founded Fair Museum Jobs in 2017, but really kicked off properly in 2018. And the reason that we set Fair Museum Jobs up in the broadest way is because we were angry. We were seeing so much bad practice in job adverts, but nobody centrally calling them out. So none of the funders, none of the sector support organizations were doing that work of saying, actually, this is bad. This is underpaid. This is badly written. This is asking too much for the salary. And my, me and my Fair Museum Jobs colleague, Tom, had really seen this on Twitter. And particularly, Tom had had an issue with, with calling it out at a personal level. So it really came to to the idea of putting together an organization, a sort of collective, so that it wasn't an individual named person doing this work. It was a group with goals and aims and a manifesto saying, this is what you should and shouldn't be doing. And having that collective approach partly to protect ourselves and other people, because there's a lot of exploitation in museums with volunteering and a lot of people on precarious contracts or work situations. So having something a bit 
more central and a bit more anonymous to kind of help point out the problems and support good practice. And what's the ultimate goal for Fair Museum Job? Is there going to be a day when you look around at the sector and think, yep, our work here is done? I really hope so. Just like with a dating app, <laughs> with like with dating apps, the ultimate goal is you don't need to exist because everyone is doing what you want them to do. So if everyone was doing all of their recruitment in the fairest, most equitable way, we wouldn't need to exist and we could dedicate our energies to something else, something else to campaign on or or our own interests and hobbies. But for now, there is a need to have this exist and that's why we will continue to. You expose a lot of pretty dubious museum job posts, things with weird part-time hours that mean you can't possibly work another job or salaries which definitely skirt what a legal living wage is. Do you get responses from museums in any cases? So when Fair Museum Jobs first set up, we would email organisations and with our questions and then tweet about it afterwards. But we were getting quite a lot of negative responses when we did that and, and very defensive ones. And I think that's a problem for any organisation or individual who is challenging people. When you're challenging people who think they're doing the best they can and saying, actually, you're not that is difficult for people and they will be defensive. And I think we've all experienced times where you've had some feedback on something where you feel like you've done your best and someone says, actually, X, Y and Z could be different. And you're like, no, no, I'm angry now. So there is there was definitely an aspect of anger that we we had in response. And that's why we stopped emailing, because actually using Twitter did the job just as well. And a lot of organizations will reply to us on Twitter to take on board our our queries and we'll make those changes. We've had a lot of organizations who've edited job descriptions because we've pointed out something in it or they've gone back and thought about salaries if we've suggested that it perhaps really is too low. So we have had quite a lot of victories from from doing that on Twitter, but it is difficult. I think what's interesting is there are some organizations who just don't engage ever. And I think particularly some of the national museums are not keen to think about what they're doing in this area. And I think an issue across the sector is making statements, but then not backing them up with action. And I think that's where Fair Museum Jobs tries to point that out. So if you're an organization who released a Black Lives Matter statement last year, but you've done nothing since then, and your recruitment practice is inherently going to disadvantage black candidates because you're not listing a salary or because you're uh, expecting particular qualifications and experience that not everyone has equal access to, to pretend that those two things are separate is at best naive, at worst, mm -hmm. I don't really know what at worst, it's it's just terrible. And I think what we've really become aware of at Fair Museum Jobs over the last year to 18 months is actually how recruitment really does intersect with all of the other issues that we're all talking about in museums and cultural heritage at the moment. Do you actually ever publish the responses? We have used some of the responses in some talks and presentations that we have 
given, we haven't ever fully published the responses that we've received. To protect that make a really good... themselves, I think. To protect themselves. Okay, yes. Um... <laughs> could make a really good coffee table book or something. <laughs> Interesting. And um, also, so in the February, quite, quite recently, in the February 2021, you published the Fair Museum Jobs Manifesto. So, and this manifesto outlines the, the must, the sh- uh, shoes and recommendations for museums and heritage vis-a-vis job listings and recruitment. And what was the process for coming up with the manifesto? Who did you talk to come up with the, with these ideas? So we, we did start out with a manifesto back when we first uh, got going in 2018, but we haven't updated it since then in a big way. And after our careers summit in November 2020, we realized that actually it was time to be more radical. We had the platform and the space and, and the voice really to make more radical recommendations for good practice. And I'm not saying every recommendation we're making is radical because they really aren't. But for museums who move quite slowly sometimes, uh, it's like steering an ocean liner to, to make change. So some of the things we're saying actually are quite radical in the context of the museum sector, I think. And our process was really to take what we had done in the past and look at what was actually happening in terms of practice that people were reporting to us. So people DM us with issues on a daily basis with job descriptions that they've seen or problems that they've encountered. And I think that was our first thing to sort of look at was what are people really struggling with and what could we include that would support employers to do better at this And then some of it came out of the feedback from the summit about the key issues that we could see were happening. And then we also looked at the work of other organizations. So we, for a really long time, we've been saying you have to show the salary. And there is an organization called Show the Salary who is doing a lot of work on that across the charity sector. And they've had really great success and we really are aligned with them. But there's also another organization in fundraising called Non-Graduates Welcome, which really makes a statement about not requiring particular qualifications for particular jobs. Because actually a qualification is one way of gaining experience or skills. It is not the only way of gaining experience and skills. And we wanted to really strengthen our statement on on what should be asked for in job descriptions based on that. Um, but Fair Museum Jobs is is not for profit. Uh, is this correct? Uh, completely. We're five people who do this in our spare time. We are spare volunteers. Time. We don't make money from doing it. We don't really have any funding. We don't even have a bank account. We just, it's its really a grassroots collective is, is really what's important to us to deliver because you can set yourself up as an organization to, to deliver this kind of thing. But actually the campaigning aspect is what's really important about what we do. And setting up as a, a formal organization, we think would make that have a different dimension to it. So for us, it is quite important to really stay grassroots because we are a group of five museum professionals. We have a we have skin in the game. 
we are affected <laughs> by all of the issues that we're campaigning on. And a lot of us um, have also had responsibility for writing a job description or working with volunteers. So we all want to be, as a group, really aware of what we're doing. And then how we can take that out into the wider sector is is really important. Do you think it is that kind of grassroots DIY nature of Fair Museum Jobs that has helped it gain such momentum? I think so. Yes. I would I've never thought about it in too much detail, but I think it helps that people who contact us know that we are one of them. We're not outsiders, we're not consultants coming in from an organization to tell museums everything they're doing wrong. We are people who understand how complicated it is to run an organization that's almost entirely volunteer-led and and what that means and what that looks like. And I think we're able to be quite reassuring as well when people contact us to say, actually, this has happened to us in the past and this is what we did. This was our experience. And to share that with people, a lot of the time people direct messaging us, they want to raise a problem, but they also need reassuring that that what they're seeing is a bad thing that needs to change and it's not a reflection on you as a person who applied for a job if you don't get feedback that's not you that's the organization and I think it has been really important that we are providing a bit of a support in that sense definitely. What's the vision for the future for Fair Museums Jobs how do you see it grow and develop? How I would like to see it grow and develop is that everyone does everything we say and then we don't have to do anything anymore. (laughs) Uh, What I realistically think will be the case is it is a slow journey. So every victory that we have where someone changes their practice means that next time they'll think about that practice in a different way. So in terms of goals, I think it's really about making people aware of what we're doing. And I think what we want to try and do in the short term is produce some more resources for employers, for museums, for HR departments, for any hiring manager to, to not quite benchmark in a formal way, but just to check that that you're thinking about the right things when you're recruiting and that you are behaving in a fair and equitable way because that benefits the sector overall, really. Fantastic. Thank you. So as someone who is actively involved in the cultural sector, particularly within the sort of hiring process, um, do you have any advice or tips for young people who are aspiring to get into the museum and and heritage sector? Is there anything in particular that they could be doing while while job hunting or things to watch out for? The difficulty is picking the the key things. I feel like as soon as I've answered this, I'll think of something better that I should have said. I think it's really important to take a critical eye when you are reading a job description. And I know from experience that sometimes you just need a job and you have to just go for what there is. And I'm not going to be unrealistic about that. But that doesn't mean that you aren't entitled to ask questions that might be critical. So you need to work out when you're job hunting, what is important to you personally, and that could be salary, or it could be working hours, or it could be benefits, or it could be flexible working, or 
a particular policy that an organization has or a particular project that you're so passionate about that those other things aren't as important because you're just really wanting to do that kind of work. But you need to know what's important to you and what you can compromise on. And I would really encourage people to think about that as early in their career as possible. Because I think if I had thought about that early in my career, I don't know if I would have made the same choices. I don't know if I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I might be doing something completely different because I I would have felt like I had a bit more power. And I think it's really easy to feel like when you're job hunting, you don't have any power, but you do. Because if you get interviewed, it's because they are interested in you and what you have to offer. And learning to find your confidence in the fact that you have something to offer is, it's easy words for me to say, but it is really important to to find that thing about yourself that that is important, that you are offering to organizations and why you are the best person. And I think if you can find that core of values within yourself, I know that sounds a bit cheesy, but it does give you the confidence to to say, actually, this isn't the right thing for me, and that's okay. Louise, we have a few questions that we ask everyone at the end of every episode to to give things a a sense of uniformity and closure. Um, if you had, if you had unlimited funding, what museum, what cultural space uh, would you would you build or create? If I had unlimited funding. I don't think I would create a new cultural space. I think that the problem in the sector right now is that there are a lot of organizations hanging on by a shoestring. And I know this sounds like a cop out, but I would much rather spread that money out to organizations that are doing the best work that they can. And they might be really constrained by, especially through COVID, what they're able to do. And I think that investment in the really amazing practice that already exists, but is limited by a lack of resources, would really be where I would want to spend that money. No, that's fine. We've had a lot of very varied responses. You're not the first one to say that they wouldn't build anything new. Yeah, but it's it's so interesting to hear that every single response varies so much. Uh, Louise, if um, there's one thing you want people to go away from this interview thinking about, what is it? If there was one thing I want people to take from this, it's that you have value and you can use that power in your career and it's okay. Brilliant. I think that's something we can all learn from, yeah. Uh, Louise, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Louise. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really interesting. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of For Art's Sake. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, find us online at forartsake.co.uk, on Twitter at sake underscore arts, or on Instagram at forartsake.uk.